Welcome to the Be Disciples podcast with your hosts, Kyle Morris and Dakota Smith. Welcome to the best podcast in the world. I mean, our discipleship podcast. How's it going, Dakota? Hey, I'm doing well, man. It's a, a joy to be here week two, your your second full week, yeah. full time here at OBC. Yeah, it's, uh, again, transition, but each day is is becoming a little bit more rhythmic, uh, rhythmic yeah, or yeah. just understanding uh, what I need to get done in a day, uh, some things, and then prioritizing, I think, is another thing for me. Does this need to be done today, or can this wait till later? Are there other things I can address today that would have a larger impact? So I think that that's helpful. But we had a, a I had a helpful meeting this week, and I know you benefit largely from this ministry, but there's a ministry called Pastor Serve that has uh, pastors who are, who are seasoned, who have been doing it for a long time, who, Many did, decades. who disciple uh, younger pastors uh, with less experience, really just to help uh, with their ministry and their vision and how to execute and ask a lot of questions and just help us think through things. And, uh, and we had that meeting this, this last Monday. And uh, with Arthur Jackson. Yeah, Arthur and I have been working together for two years. He's been my mentor uh, through Pastor Serve, this organization that seeks to serve younger pastors and to coach them up in the ministry. And I brought you along just to get a little bit of a taste of what Arthur and I do around the table. We just talk about ministry. Uh, some of the biggest things would be what are your highlights, what are your hindrances, and what are your hopes? You know, positives and negatives, and then looking forward, what what would you like to see grow and change? And just a word out there to long-term or long-time seasoned veteran pastors who poured their lives into their congregations, and now they're pouring their lives into other pastors. Oh my goodness. Uh, the definition of maturity is being able to see a step ahead. And the definition of immaturity to a degree, is not being able to see what's around the corner. And one thing that Arthur has done with me is he's helped me to gain a, 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 a vision that seeks to go farther, to see things before uh, they crash and, and, and burn. So <laughs> I, I love him, and we had an awesome time this last week with him. Yeah, and even from a, from a personal growth standpoint, spiritually and just kind of talking about the struggles that come along with the day-to-day or the change and transitions. And and so not even just maybe ministry strategy, but also personally, how to organize yourself, how to think through things, um, just to, to get into that mindset and be able to sit down and and really uh, explore ideas and thoughts that you may have and uh, and then have somebody who's lived it who's experienced the ups and the downs and has gone through things that, uh, you know, you and I, Dakota, have not gone through yet. But, and he's he's not only been a pastor, but a husband of many, many years mm-hmm. with adult children and being a grandpa. And I mean, there's just life experience that you and I can't have until we actually do it uh, as time passes. So he's very valuable to have uh, as a part of our ministry and to, to give us a different perspective from uh, somebody who's done it. Yeah. Well, with that being said, speaking of discipleship and speaking of a life that's rooted and based in wisdom, that's somewhat the direction we continue to take today. As we've been doing and as we've noted, what we're seeking to do is for every episode now to accomplish just one chapter through the book of Mark. And today we're going to actually finish up a little bit in Mark chapter 11, but primarily we're going to be camping out in Mark chapter 12. Our last episode, we saw Jesus's triumphant entry 
into Jerusalem. And then we also see that he curses a fig tree. He drives out money changers in the temple. And essentially, we are now in the position in Mark's gospel where Mark spends the last third of his book focusing on the final week of Jesus's life before he is crucified and then, of course, resurrects from the dead. But what greater picture of discipleship would you want to see? when, As Jesus has been teaching to carry your cross daily, what greater picture of discipleship would you want to see than the obedience of Jesus right before his death? And I think that's now where we sit within these scriptures. Kyle, any thoughts before we jump into chapter 11, verse 27? No, let's jump in. So chapter 11, verse 27, all the way to 33, I think this is actually going to catapult us into chapter 12. Then they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him and began saying to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do these things? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question and you answer me. Then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me. They began reasoning among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Then why did you not believe him? But shall we say from men? They were afraid of the people, for everyone considered John to have been a real prophet. Answering Jesus, they said, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. We're seeing a consistent theme that's going to begin developing is this constant questioning of the Pharisees and constant return or exchange of Jesus to all of these false teachers and really the nationalistic leaders in Israel itself. Yeah, and we have to remember that these questions have a purpose. These aren't people seeking true answers, these Pharisees, Sadducees. Uh, scribes, elders, chief priests, all the different titles that they have, it can kind of give you an idea that these are men with titles. These are men with an agenda, and they come to Jesus with that agenda, and we're going to see Jesus pointing out the area of that question or in their life that they're not quite grasping, that he's kind of pointing out the selfishness of these men uh, and really what they're trying to get out of Jesus or trap Jesus into saying something and make a mistake. Yeah, what do you think their agenda is if you had to narrow it down? I mean, we're going to see as it develops. I mean, really, we see them, um, you know, Jesus is a threat to their livelihood mm-hmm. uh, in a sense, right? He's mm-hmm. coming in and preaching something that's different than what they're preaching. It really takes away their authority as leaders in, of Israel mm-hmm. because he's saying, I'm God. Right. I'm king. Right. I'm the ruler of these people. Yeah. And they don't like that. No. Because they're the ones walking around with their robes and with their, you know, being the the talk of the town and they're in control and they have power and they're really the ones who people go to mm-hmm. and they don't want that taken away from them. Yeah, I think you you nailed it on the head. Jesus is a threat to their their power. I don't know if he's teaching something different. I think he's rather just teaching something completely pure that's unmixed with their legalism and their tradition and what they want to add to the text, right? So they've got impure devotion. They want to guard their power. And Jesus is coming and saying, I'm actually going to show you the real thing. 
So now we're going to see a number of questions and responses. We're going to see this massive dialogue for the rest of chapter 12. So let's just jump into it. Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 1, And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a wall around it, and dug a vat under the winepress and built a tower, and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. At the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers in order to receive some of the produce of the vineyard from the vine growers. They took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent them another slave, and they wounded him in the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and that one they killed, and so with many others, beating some and killing others. He had one more to send, a beloved son. He sent him last of all to them, saying, Oh, they will respect my son. But those vine growers said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. They took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. Have you not even read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Question mark. And they were seeking to seize him, and yet they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke the parable against them. And so they left him and went away. So just pausing there at verse 12, initial thoughts. Well, we do know from this parable and from other places in Scripture, so when we really look at the biblical context of what what is this vineyard that he's talking about, we see in the First Testament, really, uh, a vineyard is, is used as a picture of Israel. Uh, so we know that he's talking about Israel is the vineyard. Uh, and then we have those who, we have the owner of the vineyard, which God, God, and then we have the people who work in the vineyard, which are God's people. Uh, and so we see this this thing where the owner is is not in the vineyard necessarily, right? He's not there, but he has people that he sends, and he has stewarded it, and and yeah, to to take care of the vineyard, and then those to go and and get the produce from the vineyard. Um, Dakota, what could these? They call them slave, or Jesus calls them slaves yeah. in the text. But who are these people that God is sending to Israel? Yeah, well. First of all, whenever you look at a parable, when you're reading the Bible, you've got to remember it's very important not to make something out of every single detail in a parable because a parable is only supposed to lead you to one main point. But sometimes it's appropriate for the main or the consistent structures of a parable to find some type of parallels um, and, and specific detail for. So, Here, I would argue that the ones that this owner of the vineyard has continued to send one after another, these servants one after another, would be the Old Testament prophets, Mm -hmm. whom the nation of Israel has, number one, uh, either beaten or number two, more than likely, has murdered them. God's prophets bring a word of warning so that the nation itself can become healthy from a covenantal perspective with God as their Lord and King. But the nation of Israel doesn't want to hear that they're unhealthy, just like these religious leaders don't want to hear that they are unhealthy. Mm -hmm. I think then you get to the point in the parable where it's like, okay, they've killed all the servants. They've murdered all the prophets. Now you get to the son. Oh, I'll send my son. And when I send my son, they'll listen. Jesus is actually speaking of himself here 
And again, right before his own death, he's telling them, I am that son in the parable. You're getting ready to murder me. Yeah. I mean, we can see a, a quick story from the First Testament where we can see this happening and playing out amongst the Israelites is when Moses is on Mount Sinai, he goes up and talks to the Lord, and the people of Israel are at the bottom of the mountain, totally disobeying God, uh, yeah. worshiping idols, having orgies, doing whatever they want, mm-hmm. and literally the messenger from God, who will be Moses, to come down to present to them the Ten Commandments— um, you know, they continue to to not follow God and they continue to do things that are against him. And so that's just kind of a quick example of these messengers that God sends uh, to give them what they need and they don't listen. Yeah, well, and from the beginning, and we know from Stephen himself when he was stoned, um, what do we know about the nation of Israel? He, he called them stiff-necked. You know, they've been stiff-necked from the beginning. They wanted to take out Moses they wanted to take out all the prophets. This is just the nature. See, it's interesting to me that God rescues them from Egypt because Pharaoh was so incredibly evil and Pharaoh hardens his heart 10 times against God. But then you look at the nation of Israel in the wilderness and what do we see? We see that they, there's 10 different accounts of the nation of Israel hardening their heart towards God. So it's it's like God is saying, even when I choose you, as my selected nation to represent me and do ministry with, the real problem with you, Jew, or even with you, Gentile, is your heart. Yeah. And here specifically, Jesus says to the nation of Israel, look at the leaders in verse 10, have you not even read this scripture? It's like he, he's, he's got this perspective. You don't even know the scriptures. And because you don't even know the scriptures, you don't know me. You don't love me. You're not devoted to me. If you don't know my word, you're not devoted to me. The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone, the stone, the cornerstone that holds it all together. Uh, you've rejected that stone. Verse 12, they were seeking to seize him, yet they feared the people. Uh, everything that happens in this parable is going to continue to push us along the rest of the passage. Yeah, and I mean, their response right here, before we get into the next, before we go into 13, is they have this struggle between seizing him to remove him from this teaching mm-hmm. because it's taking away their power yeah. their but authority they, their authority but they also don't want to make the people mad yeah. just like the question about John the Baptist well we don't want to say anything bad about John because the people love John mm-hmm. they believe he's a real prophet so they're playing this game of we need to appease the people but we also want to assert our authority so there's this game being played by the leaders to keep their authority but also please the people to keep peace because there is consequences from the Romans if the peace isn't kept. Mm -hmm. And that's going to play later on in Jesus's death. Well, isn't the underlying question, where does your devotion lie? I mean, that's really just a silver lining of what we're seeing here. Where does your devotion really lie? Are you a pleaser of men? Are you a pleaser of self? Are you out to please God? This is really coming to the surface. So let's pick it up. Kyle, do you want to read Mark chapter 12, verses 13, all the way to 17? We now see the next section. Verse 13, then they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to him in order to trap him in a statement. Hmm. They came and said to him, teacher, we know that you are truthful and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why are you testing me? Bring me a Daenerys to look at. 
They brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar's the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were amazed at him. Where should our devotion lie? To Caesar or to God? And Jesus is essentially saying, well, number one, God is sovereign over all. And if Caesar is in charge, then you give to Caesar what belongs to him because God has ordained his governmental leadership. Mm -hmm. But there's also an inscription that's laid on you and I as people. It's called the image of God. And because we are created in the image of God, we are to give to God what is God's. So I think Jesus is, while he knows they are trying to catch him in a trap, he's he's also teaching in this moment. He's not just rebuking. There's some teaching here. Um, this is how you live in the midst of the world. You understand the sovereignty of God, and you also understand how to live underneath earthly kingdoms and rulers for now while at the same time realizing who your ultimate king should be. But the Pharisees wouldn't have liked that because they hated the Roman Empire. Yeah, they wanted, they wanted them out. I mean, they all did. I mean, you had a, a, a ruler and a, and a country and a people really in charge of Israel at this time, ruling these lands, and they didn't want them there. So, so to hear Jesus say, right. you know, give Caesars what is Caesars. Yeah. But remember who's really in charge. Absolutely. But also remember who created you. Right. Who should you be living for? Who mm -hmm. should you be devoted to? Mm -hmm. Just because you have to give something to Caesars doesn't mean you're not fully devoted to God. But because you've chosen other things, you're not fully devoted to God. You're choosing yourself and you're choosing to find ways around it or you're choosing to to lift yourself up and and it's just it, again they're 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 playing this game of of how can we get Jesus out? How can we trap him? And how can we do something that lifts our own authority up and not his? Just some relevance to, to today as well, because this passage would cause the modern day Christian, specifically in America, to say, so what do I have to give to Caesar? I don't think that this is saying that you as an American have to give something over to the government that they are stealing from you, whether it's your rights or your property or anything like that, because that would be an unjust form of authority. That's that's not how things have been ordained in this country, right? So the things that truly belong to Caesar, you give to Caesars that are legally defined as Caesars, right? But the things that belong to God, you give to God. Uh, this is definitely a tricky place for the Christian to live, but we when things are legitimate, uh, from a legality perspective, we need to obey God and we need to do whatever the government tells us as long as we don't disobey God in the process. So there's a lot of questions that you could pull from that. That's not today's discussion, but it's just making sure that you hear it in context. Yeah, and I'm, I mean, at least... Not for, saying to just get yeah. stepped on. <laughs> right. Well, at least for them, it w they lived in a different governmental uh, structure, right? Mm -hmm. They lived in an empire. Yeah. There was somebody, one person in charge of it all. Yeah. And that's not the way America is set up. So their situation is a little different from the fact that they don't have a say. Right. 
There's no democracy here. <laughs> you know, this is a dictatorship that they're living under. We, fortunately, at this time, live uh, in a democracy, and we do have a say. We do have a vote, and so it is a little different to where, yeah, we are. We need to pay taxes as Christians. Um, there, there's things that this country requires, such as our military and infrastructure and all kinds of things that requires money and requires, uh, you know, luxuries that we have in America. But there are rights that we have under our own constitution that protects the people. And we are, as Christians, allowed to exercise those rights that have been given to us by the government when it was created. So there is differences here, but we do, as Christians, have to remember all the decisions that we make, we must make in devotion to our relationship to Jesus. That's it. It comes down to having a sincere devotion, not a divided devotion. Correct. So continuing on, we now pick it up in verses 18 through 27. We move from the Pharisees to the Sadducees. You could say that the Pharisees of the day were were maybe the religious conservatives, and you could say the Sadducees of the day were the religious liberals. So verse 18, some Sadducees who say that there is no resurrection, uh, they kind of rejected a lot of forms of supernaturalism. They came to Jesus and began questioning him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves behind a wife and leaves no child, his brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brother. Well, there were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died leaving no children. The second one married her and died leaving behind no children, and the third likewise. And so all seven left no children. Last of all, the woman died also. In the resurrection, when they rise again, which one's wife will she be? For all seven had married her. (laughs) Verse 24, Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are mistaken that you do not understand the scriptures or the power of God? (laughs) (laughs) You don't even know the Bible. Just stop your antics. Is this not the reason you are mistaken that you do not understand the scriptures or the power of God? Verse 25, For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But regarding the fact that the dead rise again, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they're alive in heaven, but of the living. You are greatly mistaken. So Jesus goes from responding to the Pharisees. Now he responds to the Sadducees, one with a devotion to government. Maybe you could also say um, here with the Sadducees a a certain devotion to um, familial interests, a certain devotion to um, self-produced power, but they're theologically incorrect from the very beginning, and Jesus is just having to correct their understanding of what eternity is going to be like. Yeah, I think they're working in the in the the sphere of wanting to do good on earth. You know what I mean? Okay, Moses says this, we're supposed to, you know, a man should marry the wife if if their brother dies, and there's this whole thing that takes place, and, and it's almost like, what's the right thing to do? And God's like, you're focused on the wrong thing. <laughs> you're not focused on who God is and living for God, but you're focused on 
some random question, one of the most ridiculous questions in the Bible, yeah. <laughs> I could almost, you know, you could almost say, you're focused on something that isn't important. For one, you don't even believe uh, that those who have who have died and gone before you are still alive in heaven, yeah. and reminds him of how great God is and the people who are still alive. So they're almost stuck in in the now, stuck in, are we doing what is ethically good? Um, and, and it's their own works. Are we doing what we're supposed to be doing? And God's like, well, you're not devoting yourself to me. So what does that even mean? Yeah. Well, and I want to back up just for a moment too. The Sadducees were those who did not believe in a resurrection. They're now asking him question. They're giving him this scenario to try and see, okay, Jesus, where do you stand on the resurrection? And by saying, or by giving Jesus these questions, he responds by essentially saying, look, you don't even know the scriptures. Of course there's a resurrection. Did you not know that God is a God of the living, not of the dead, right? So moving on from there, Jesus uh, answers their question. Really, it comes down to a devotion of what God can do, who God is, what he's able to do. Starting in verse 28, you now find another party, a third party. One of the scribes came and heard them arguing and recognizing that he had answered them well, asked him, what commandment is the foremost of all? Jesus answered, the foremost is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. The scribe said to him, Right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one, and there is no one else besides him. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. Look how Jesus responds, verse 34. When Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. After that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. Pharisees, Sadducees, now you get a scribe who's he says is close to the kingdom. Close, but still not quite there. Yeah. And we're gonna get a little bit more of a description of of these scribes as we continue reading. But the scribes themselves know the answer. So he asks the question and agrees with Jesus. Yes, Jesus, I agree with you. You're right on, Jesus. It's almost kind of weird that they're telling Jesus that he's right, um, because we know Jesus is right. And he says, you are not far from the kingdom of God, Mm -hmm. which means that they haven't received the kingdom of God yet. Right. Because there's other moments in, in, in scripture where Jesus does tell people, for you have received the kingdom of God. And here they have not. They're, they're close. They understand it. They understand that it's more than and offerings and sacrifices. They understand that it is about loving God first before all things, but there's still something they're not doing. It's almost like they look like they're loving God, but they're not actually loving God in their hearts. Yeah. Yeah. Jesus says you are close to the kingdom of God. He doesn't say you've, you've reached it probably because this individual is still in the questioning phase of it all. But if we were to think back to the previous two discussions, the Sadducees had this allegiance to their liberalism. So they were trying to trap him with a question about the resurrection. The The Pharisees themselves had an allegiance to be like, you know, to find some type of nationalistic ruling and reigning. 
Jesus is like, nah, your problem's not Rome as much as it is your heart <laughs> by way of their own conduct. But now as the passage in the chapter starts to close, we start to settle in even further on what the po- main point is all about. Yeah, and Jesus is actually going to be the one now to ask a question. Yeah, which isn't, he's not being asked the question, he's... Now asking. Asking. So verse 35 says that Jesus began to say, as he taught in the temple, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself said in the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So in what sense is he his son? And the large crowd enjoyed listening to him. In his teaching, he was saying, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like respectful greetings in the marketplaces and chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets who devour widows' houses and for appearance's sake offer long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. Yeah, it's like he's warning you what devotion to God does not look like. You know, he he's, first of all, he brings up a psalm, verse 36, David himself said in the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, Jesus is trying to point this crowd to the fact that the Messiah will come from David's line. He will also be Lord God. He's giving them this picture of the divine and the fully human. And then he's also giving a, a picture of what it looks like to have impure devotion, that of the Pharisees. So he, he pictures himself and he pictures their counterfeit walk, which looks zealous and religious. He talks about how they devour widows' houses. Essentially, they're thieves and they love their greetings and they love their their power and their authority and their fame. They love that. The last people he ends with, the last people group he ends with, though, is he speaks of how these false teachers, they devour widows' houses and they love the appearance of long prayers, how they're going to receive greater condemnation. Well, now, verses 41 to 44, he picks up this whole idea of a widow yet again. So whereas you had the widows being taken advantage of, now look at the widow's devotion in 41 to 44. Shall I read it? And Jesus sat down opposite the treasury and began observing how the people were putting money into the treasury. And many rich people were putting in large sums. A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which amount to a cent. Calling his disciples, teaching moment for them. He said to them, truly, I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury. For they all put in out of their surplus. But she, out of her poverty, put in all, everything, all she owned, all she had to live on. It's like she's being contrasted with the Pharisees. There's a type of pure devotion that is all out versus a type of surface level devotion, which is really all for yourself. Yeah, she was, she was somebody of low status. I mean, to be a widow back then, I mean, you had no one to support you. Uh, your husband is gone, the one that took care of you in this culture. Uh, and, and a woman's status was not the same as a woman's status 
current day America, uh, where you could go and be a CEO of a company and and make a living for yourself and, and be successful. And so we have a lowly widow who gives all that she can to the Lord, every amount, every ounce, even though she doesn't have much to give. What an opposite picture from the Pharisees and these leaders. What an opposite picture of, of who they are uh, in their hearts. And so Jesus actually uses this as a teaching moment uh, for his disciples. He says, gather, come here. Uh, truly, truly, I, you know, I say to you, look at, I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury because of her devotion yeah. to God, not because of the tangible physical things that she had, but because in her heart, she knew that she honored the Lord in all the things, even if it was a little bit of stuff, mm-hmm. even if, it, if she didn't have much, it was, she gave all of herself to God and it wasn't about her. It wasn't about ele- elevating her status. Yeah but it was about elevating Jesus's status to saying, you are God. The glory goes to you. You provide all things. Mm -hmm. My life is devoted to you. I call you Lord. It's really interesting that in the last couple of passages, we have seen this continued interchange between appearance and what really lies beneath the surface. You know, with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and a lot of these scribes, their appearance looks great, but they're not truly devoted. They don't even know the scriptures. They don't really love God. But then on the opposite end, you have the appearance of the poor widow who by looks, she's barely putting anything into the treasury. She's not given much at all. Man, I mean, this she's not doing much. She's not very devoted. But beneath the surface, she's giving everything everything she can. And I think Jesus is bringing this point to the disciples because the main teaching becomes this. A real life of discipleship is a life that goes beyond appearance. A real life of discipleship is where in the bottom of someone's heart, they have given it all to the Lord and they continue to give all to the Lord. Yeah. And I just want to challenge um, our listeners. Maybe maybe you live in Ottawa, Kansas Maybe you're in Franklin County. Maybe, uh, you know, wherever you are around the world and you listen to this podcast, Jesus reminds us in this passage of a couple things. One, know the Word of God. Know your Scripture. There were multiple moments in, in what we just read that he points out that you don't even know what the Word of God says, and you're making yourself kind of look silly <laughs> uh, that you don't know that. The dangerous part about that is when you don't know the Word of God, the appearances of others is what captivates you. Oh, yeah. There are going to be false teachers and leaders that call themselves Christians, pastors, that say they follow Jesus, but don't teach the Word of God. Mm. If you don't know the Word of God, you won't know the wolves that are right in front of you. Know your Word. And once you know your Word, you're able to see who's false. You're able to know what pastors are truly teaching the Word of God. I challenge you to question where you're currently at, where you're currently uh, a part of. If your church is teaching the Word of God, they're doing expository teaching, they're teaching verse by verse, and you're learning the true Word of God, 
Praise God. Yeah. Amen. But if that's not happening, I challenge you to look for something like that. Yeah. Like we do. We go verse by verse through this podcast. Uh, we want to teach the Word of God and teach people how to teach it to others. And so that's the challenge to you. This is such a, ver- a passage that goes into the core of this podcast and why we do it. And so uh, I just pray that you all find a church to be a part of, to learn the Word of God, to grow together, to serve together, and devote your lives to Jesus. Well said. And you know, this whole podcast, our whole goal is to bring about an assistance of discipleship. As we've been speaking about for this whole series, we're just wanting to trailblaze the book of Mark so that you understand what discipleship-oriented discussions look like so that you could read the book of Mark with whoever you are discipling. So if you are someone who's living from afar, if you are nowhere near Kansas, nowhere near Ottawa, Kansas, where we're located, I challenge you to really start taking discipleship to the heart. Bring discipleship outside of your church walls. Yes, it should happen in the church walls, but bring bring it outside of it as well. Bring it to the coffee shop and to someone's dinner table and, and to somebody's life and sit down with the scriptures and make disciples. But if you are specifically from Ottawa, Kansas, something else that we want to really encourage you to do is as you are listening, you know, we, we hear statements and compliments on a weekly basis about this podcast. We want to encourage you, are you yourself living life as a disciple of Jesus? If if you can't look at your weekly schedule and say, here's who I meet with, and not only do I meet with them, but I, I'm prepared to follow up with them about when our next meeting date is going to be. If your schedule can't prove that you value discipleship, I just want to encourage you to do it. Everyone's being discipled in one direction or another. Either they're being discipled or influenced by the world, or they're being discipled by you or the Word of God in Jesus. So with that being said, we just encourage you to live lives purely devoted to Jesus as disciples. Yeah, and so thank you so much for listening to our podcast. Please, please share the podcast uh, with others. Uh, We want people to hear the Word of God, and it's an opportunity for you to share the gospel and to share more about who Jesus is. If somebody's exploring and thinking and has questions, point them to our podcast. We would love for them to, to listen and gather more about the Word of God. Thank you, and have a blessed day.